0: Hello and welcome to Ideas Matter podcast. This is the podcast from the educational charity, Ideas Matter, where we feature guest experts and thinkers in order to try and make sense of the important ideas and intellectual trends that shape the world today. I'm Alistair Donald, I'm the convener of Living Freedom, the initiative organized by Ideas Matter with the aim of renewing freedom through education and debate. In this episode, we feature the lecture, Freedom in the Age of Identity Politics, which was recorded in late June at the Living Freedom Summer School 2023. This is the second podcast in the series of talks from that event. You'll be able to listen to more in the coming episodes, so do please subscribe to us on your favourite podcast feed. Loved or loathed, identity politics is now the inescapable context for contemporary battles over freedom and free speech. In recent years, the political embrace of the personal and group identity has come to be seen by advocates as a vital tool in the struggle against oppressive practices and institutions. Proclaiming one's identity, so the argument goes, is a means to help advance the causes of respect and tolerance for minorities. But to others, identity politics is an inherently divisive force in society and it represents the antithesis of liberal ideas such as the quest for individual autonomy. There's seemingly no end in sight to the daily rage of the culture wars, so in this episode we explore the status of freedom today in the context of identity politics and ask whether contemporary claims to identity are necessarily hostile to universal political ideals, such as freedom and equality, and we reflect on how best we can construct a sense of ourselves and of freedom today. The lecturer is Dr Joanna Williams, director of CIEO, a columnist at the online magazine Spiked, and author of a number of books, including most recently How Woke One, the elitist movement that threatens democracy, tolerance and reason.
1: really got me thinking the title of the session today freedom in an age of identity politics because I think it seems so very contradictory when we think about freedom and restraints today because in some ways it can seem as if we live in an age of unprecedented personal freedom suddenly the suburban conformity that was still around when i was a child the kind of neck curtain twitching neighbors who'd grass you up to your mum if you stayed out too late or came home drunk that that kind of seems something from history now it seems to have been consigned to the past alongside office dress codes and kind of deference to those in authority and today when we have kind of freedom for tattoos and piercings niche diets music and media on demand we're all able to express our individuality and now we're free to bring our whole selves to work is one slogan we can dress down in jeans and trainers in the office or even choose to stay at home and just work from bed instead and not even biology stands in the way of our self-expression Unwanted body parts can be removed, we can have others added on, we can take opposite sex hormones until our physical bodies match our mental self-image and we can also insist that others fall in line, um, respecting our new names, using the pronouns that we choose and and uh, respecting our right to access once forbidden spaces. And freedom that begins with rejecting sex assigned at birth can end in some parts of the world, at least, uh, with the freedom to choose how and when to die. So, so on the one hand, it can seem as if we've got these unprecedented personal freedoms. But I think we, we soon discover that these, this age of personal freedom, this age of self-expression, actually comes with its own strict rules. So if we don't have the net curtain-twitching neighbors, but we do have social media snoops. And whereas disapproving neighbours could tut loudly or grass you up to your mum, tweet the wrong joke, and it might be the police who come knocking at your door. You can wear what you like to work, but attendance at diversity training workshops is often made mandatory. And if once you're there, you question what you're taught, you might be hauled before your boss with your employment and your income at risk. And it's the same at university. Opportunities for self expression have never been greater or more limited. So you, on campus, you see men wear makeup, women are non binary, polyamory is celebrated, but seminars can be silent if students spe- um, fear speaking out of turn. So this this is what I'm talking about in terms of the contradiction. It seems as if we've got unprecedented opportunities to express our individual identity, but that sits alongside a growing intolerance of views that challenge the consensus. So as we've seen in the newspapers over the past couple of weeks, at school, pupils can change their gender, or they can even change their species. Um, But those who ask how this is possible, or why it is desirable, Uh, can find themselves labelled despicable, told to shut up and advised to find a different school. On social media, um, on, on campus or in the workplace, if you say that men cannot become women or that there is no such thing as a transgender child or if you say that Britain is not a structurally racist society or that marriage should be a union between a man and a woman And you soon discover that cancel culture, no platforming, compelled speech become very real phenomena indeed. And in this way, there's a kind of demand for emotional, intellectual, political conformity, which really poses, I think, a very big challenge to older, far more fundamental freedoms than just the freedom to get a tattoo or to even to change your, your, your gender. I'm talking about things like freedom of speech, religious freedom, freedom of association, and perhaps most fundamentally of all, freedom of conscience. So we've got these two seemingly contradictory things that are true at the same time. More freedom than ever before to express our personalities, but freedom of speech and freedom of conscience are held in scant regard and, and often actively denigrated. So I think the, the conundrum for me, and I think the question I'd really like to put to you this morning is how both of these things can be true at the same time. And for me to answer that question, I think it's important that we look at the shift that's taken place over the course of several decades now from a class-based politics towards identity politics. I'm defining identity politics as a way of grouping people according to characteristics, often characteristics which they have no control over whatsoever, such as sex, gender identity, race, sexuality. And then it builds in this assumption that each identity group carries with it a particular social status or power, and that groups can be ranked according to these various levels of privilege and oppression, with some groups, for example, maybe black women, considered less powerful than perhaps other groups such as white men. And in, through a prism of social justice, the demand is that, that power is then taken away from white men or privilege is taken away from white men and, and kind of given if it's possible to give privilege or give Extra status to, to more what's perceived to be more disadvantaged groups such as black women, in order to kind of level up the playing field, in order to neutralize the power imbalances that are considered to be built into society. So, according to this outlook, free speech becomes incredibly problematic as a right because if it's applied universally, then it simply amplifies the voices of the already privileged. And so, you need censorship. Or self-censorship, even better, in order to give more oppressed groups a platform and to actually create equality. So that—that's the logic, I think, that's that's coming from the people who are arguing we need we need censorship, we need to question free speech. But I think one immediate problem with this approach is that a focus on group identity um, really obliterates individuality. I mean, it it assumes that all members of that group share a common experience and wish to label themselves accordingly, that they all have the same political outlook. I think Joe Biden really best encapsulated uh, this view in the run-up to the last presidential election. uh, You've probably heard this, but he said that black voters who were considering uh, voting for Donald Trump, you know, they, they ain't black. You just cringe. It's just not, not even just the sentiment, but the, the language he used as well. Just awful. Um, I mean, to me, the assumption that people who share a skin colour uh, must also share a particular outlook is actually an old-fashioned racist trope. And, and, but I think the important point is that with identity politics, um, there's no room for individual differences or viewpoints. And, and every time you, you've maybe heard yourself doing it, I'm, I'm embarrassed to admit, I've certainly done it in the past, every time we begin a sentence by saying, you know, speaking as a speaking as a woman, speaking as a mother, those are things I've certainly heard myself saying, um, we're, we're acknowledging really an inability simply to speak for ourselves and... and as well as signalling the end of individuality, I think this is the important point here, identity politics also signals the end of universalism, because by emphasising group membership, we're focusing on what divides us from each other, not what we have in common. So I think in this way, identity politics effectively marks the end of class politics too. Whereas previous generations of activists made sense of the world through competing class interests, now social class i think really just becomes another identity it becomes a badge to be worn kind of signified through our cultural choices you know do you prefer gregg's or prêt-a-manger where do you get your clothes from where do you go on holiday and those things as much as job and income become kind of markers of your social class and part of your identity in that very fixed kind of way And they're considered no more influential, really, in determining people's life chances uh, than any other characteristic that you might happen to have. And I think it's really the left's rejection of class, and more particularly the rejection of the working class, as a a powerful agent of political change. And it's it's of subsequent search then for a new constituency amongst different identity groups that that's allowed identity politics to become so dominant today because whereas a, a focus on social class spoke to a political project that moved beyond the individual to to allow us to forge solidarities that transcended race gender sexuality identity politics really abandons those universal objectives and it means that we turn our focus inwards that We're expected to focus on ourselves, but it's not a strong, powerful sense sense of self where we have things in common with other people. What we find when we look inwards is a fragile self, and rather than seeking to change society then, we seek only to change our own bodies or to change ourselves, and we're constantly striving for recognition of our identity. Rather than assuming power, then, we must make do with affirmation and recognition from others. And in this way, I think our focus on identity really speaks to an exhaustion with politics and a cynicism about humanity. But it also speaks to a loss of faith in individuals. Rather than a shared humanity, we've only got our identity groups. And rather than powerful individuals, we've just got fragile beings in need of constant affirmation I think identity politics emerges from an epistemology that emphasizes lived experience or your personal standpoint as a way of understanding and making sense of the world and according to this view there isn't one truth or or a, an objective reality I mean the, the people we can most recognize here are Harry and Meghan I guess who, who are constantly trying to tell us about their truth. We, we have a socially constructed world created by people with their own truths. Uh, uh, it's interesting, again, it's another contradiction. I'd be keen to hear people's views on this because it seems to me that although identity politics erases a strong sense of individual autonomy and agency, really its founding mantra is this idea that the personal is political. And embracing the personal has come to be seen as a vital tool in the struggle against oppression. And personal has become how we do politics today. So, in order to challenge um, structural racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia in the police or education, the family, the idea is that we need to make room for lived experience and that proclaiming identity becomes the number one way of challenging. Um, existing paradigms of privilege and oppression. Uh, So proponents of identity politics will point out that it's not good enough simply to highlight statistics showing that the police or universities are not racist institutions if they can point to the lived experience of people who tell a different story. So in a a political context nowadays that, that denigrates both individual agency and universalism I think, sadly, that leaves freedom as a really hollow concept. It comes to be understood as little more than a consumer choice. It's the power to opt for one brand over another, or indeed opt out of choosing any brand altogether. It becomes a lifestyle choice to go vegan or raise gender-neutral children. And in turn, these lifestyle choices that we make, which I actually think are kind of whether I choose Coke or Pepsi, you know, it's not a major political thing or drink Bud Light or don't drink Bud Light. Um, but but this is kind of how politics is seen to be done nowadays, not in the debating hall or at the ballot box or in street protests, but in the contents of your supermarket trolley or in the clothes that your children are wearing. And so kind of mundane, I think, actually quite boring aspects of people's lives are assumed to be kind of significant political statements. And I think this is why we have what's... What, Comes to be known as the culture wars. So, this is the contradiction that I'm getting at throughout. The ability to make these lifestyle choices, to change our bodies or alter our diet, it can appear liberating. You know, they're choices which arguably weren't there for people of an older generation, but the promise of liberation through changing your body or through raising your children in a different way very, very soon is found wanting. And our, it's our self obsession. That limits our capacity to really find solidarity with others. So raising gender-neutral children might seem more um, progressive than an old-fashioned. I mean, what a kind of old-fashioned idea that if you have a female baby, you raise her to be a girl, or if you have a male baby, you raise him to be a boy. But it's actually, I think, that's a really important process because it's through that gendered socialisation that children become adults and, and learn to take their own place in the world and not socialising children into society's values and traditions doesn't give them freedom. I think it just creates an absence of restraint, and with no rules, there's actually nothing to rebel against. You know, you've know, you just created a void for people. The absence of boundaries, to my mind, really reflects a society that struggles to give meaning or purpose to life. So, in response, I think then it's perhaps understandable that, that new boundaries are created, but these new boundaries, I think, are far more limited than before. Uh, so, feminists, for example, once fought to ensure that women could do anything that men did and that being female didn't dictate what you wore or how you behaved. But when sex is rejected for gender identity, particularly for transgender people, It seems to me that they're actually compelled to perform masculinity or perform femininity in a way that's actually not progressive at all but really rehabilitates very outdated stereotypes and the flip side of that is that other people then also come to take on a label you know I'm supposed to stand here today and say speaking as a cis woman and be compelled to linguistically affirm things that they know to be untrue Likewise with race, I think identity politics moves us away from the very important freedom, a really important freedom, I think, to be judged by the content of our character rather than the colour of our skin. But today, the view is that we should stay in our lane, that we should beware the dangers of cultural appropriation. And I think this instruction, you know, it's a demand really, isn't it? Stay in your lane really acknowledges the the formal and the informal policing that always seems to accompany identity politics. So, at work and on campus, on the one hand, we're celebrating diversity and inclusion, but at the same time, we're excluding people who have different views. And the upshot, I think, is that we live in an age not of freedom, but of intellectual and political conformity. But sadly, while some of the leading opponents of identity politics, I think they actually share the same pessimistic view about people, um, which gets in the way of them being able to make the case for either individual freedom or freedom as a universal value. So I'm going to highlight a a new group that I think has emerged very recently, a group that that I was going to say I label, but, but that's not true. They label themselves as reactionary feminists and they argued that we, we have to have a more realistic view of where the limits to individual freedom lie. Uh, so to quote one example, writing in, in Feminism Against Progress, Mary Harrington argues that it's not just women who need a freedom haircut, it's everyone. And I think what she actually shares with the left-wing, woke, identity politics advocates that she would no doubt seek to distance herself from enormously, is a really shallow view of freedom. Again, it's this idea that freedom is a lifestyle choice, that it's the trivial decisions we make about our own lives and bodies. And and the problem, I think, that they throw up, these reactionary feminists, is, is that when freedom is seen in this way, in this very trivial way, it's just individual choices we make, they then can set it against responsibility. So our individual freedoms are then set against our freedoms to our, our, our responsibilities, our commitments to our family, our community, our nation, or, or even humanity most broadly. So in that context, a mother's freedom to work is no longer seen as a, a personal decision that she might make in a very, her own unique set of circumstances, but it's judged as being in opposition to the responsibility that she has to her young children. So all those many complex decisions that that individuals are taking in conjunction with other people in their lives are overlooked and erased and problems then that we face in society that, that constrain everyone end up being blamed on too much freedom rather than too little. Uh, so solidarity, I think, once meant a really deep-rooted sense of having something in common with other people, of having shared values, a shared stake in the, com- in the future, premised on-, on community or social class or-, or even the biological reality of womanhood. But what today's phony identity groups focus on is-, is what divides people rather than what unites them. And by that way of looking at the world, strangers become threats threats to our physical safety and threats to our mental well-being. But I think in order to express solidarity with others uh, and exercise freedom to the full extent, we have to see other people as autonomous, capable, rational beings. But the important point is that neither woke activists nor their anti-woke counterparts seem to be capable of doing that. And I think it was an older generation of freedom fighters really recognise that freedom is not in opposition to responsibility but actually emerges out of our commitment to others. It's when we stand in solidarity with people, not, not on the basis of an identity group but as an expression of our common humanity, that we become aware of our, our power to bring about change. In the past, progressive um, political movements fought for individuals to be free to transcend their circumstances rather than insisting they'd be defined by their circumstances and today it seems we have the exact opposite that identity politics in restricting us to our group membership in ordering us to to respect ranks of privilege and oppression in demanding we we stay in our lane actually limits our freedom at every turn For real freedom, so by that I mean freedom of speech, freedom of belief, freedom of conscience, freedom of association, Uh, we need two things I think, both individual agency, strong, powerful individuals, but also a recognition of our common humanity. So freedom's not a lifestyle choice or a consumer choice but actually grounded in our commitment to other people. And it's when we desire freedom, not just to kind of dye our hair a wacky colour, but in order to express our intellectual, political, emotional commitment to our lives, led in solidarity with others, that it becomes something precious. And I think that's the point at which we realise that rather than having an excess of freedom, what blights our lives is actually the lack of it.
0: You've been listening to Dr. Joanna Williams give the lecture Freedom in the Age of Identity Politics. This is the second in our series of talks recorded at Living Freedom Summer School 2023. We'll be back soon with the lecture Dystopian or Dysfunctional, The 21st Century State by Josie Appleton. Don't forget to subscribe to Ideas Matter podcast on your favourite feed. And if you can, then we'd be very grateful if you could leave a positive review. If you'd like to find out more about Living Freedom, then do head to our website, www.livingfreedom.org.uk. And finally, if you can help us financially with a donation, either large or small, then please hit the donate button while you're there. Thanks. We'll be back soon.